following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. Last week I mentioned that I had a relatively accurate understanding of, the, of each Bible story, the pieces that make up the Bible. Uh, I just didn't know where all those pieces went. Uh, I mean, I could probably tell you where they went in history, where they came, what, what book they were in, but I didn't know how they fit God's story uh, until I found out there was a God story. And I found out in Message Plus last week from a number of you that, that it was the first time you had really thought in those terms that God did have an overarching story and that the rest of this fits into it. Um, so my purpose today is to try and blast through the entire Bible to give you a framework of God's story, and we should easily be done by two. So if you're interested in looking into this more, finding out about this, because I'm going to talk fast and cover a lot of things with not enough information, it's called, in, in part, the Redemptive Historical Hermeneutic. So if you look that up, then there you are. This begins with the beginning. Uh, it says that in the beginning of the book. Uh, God creates everything that was not, which was everything, because he was God and nothing else existed. He creates all of creation. Mankind is a crescendo of his creation. Uh, as long as the distinction between creator and creature was kept in view, God said everything would be good. There's a good tree in the garden that we often call the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I call it a good tree, but I don't think we often think of it that way. At least I am not used to thinking of it that way. I always thought that was the bad one. There's a good tree and a bad tree. Don't eat the bad tree, eat the good tree. But God created everything and said it was good, right? He created a good tree with a funny name. The tree itself wasn't the corrupting influence. The point was not the tree or the tree's fruit. The point was God's command, okay? By the way, I doubt that God gave it this long, weird name. Um, I bet you it's a name that we came up with, because look around, we come up with some weird names for things. Uh, I was trying to think of a parallel, so here's what I came up with. My wife, Aubrey, is setting up, you know, anywhere that's not gated or closed off. Mac, you can run wherever you like inside this garden of sorts. Uh, you can run around this area, just don't go on the counters. These are off limits. This is the one thing you don't get into. Um, let's say he disobeys, hypothetically. <sighs> um, from then on, he may refer to this area 36 inches off the ground as the place of cutting and burning. Okay? That's not what she called it. We don't call it that. It's the counter, for crying out loud. But he comes up with a funny name because that's how he experienced it. Make sense? That is where we get the name for the tree. So we have two things that happen when Mac, or, um, uh, Adam and Eve, I mean, uh, get into things that they're told not to get into. The first thing, the hammer comes down. That happened this morning. Our house was a place of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, there was suffering. There was uh, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, he fought the law, and the law won. That's what happened with Adam and Eve. The other thing that happens when we break God's law is the natural consequences of those actions come on us, okay? God doesn't necessarily have to actively put them on us in every case. Sometimes consequences follow, just as a matter of how things are created. When this happened, they changed. The fruit didn't change Adam and Eve. It wasn't part of the fruit, their disobedience is what changed them. Okay, the fruit was good. We don't know the purpose of the tree. It doesn't say. We don't know what God designed it for or why it was there, except that it was a good reason. But because they disobeyed, 
they, they changed. And the tree forever got this strange name because of the way they experienced their life changing. Happy-go-lucky blinders of youth are off. Innocence was lost. Now they knew through experience what guilt felt like. Um, I can sympathize with them in some portion. Can any of you think of a time where you wished you could, you experienced guilt firsthand and you wish you could turn the clock back even an hour and do it differently? Because the way it feels is so heavy. That's what they were in. But we didn't have to feel those consequences though. The smart choice would have been to trust God when he said, don't touch. But we aren't smart. Uh, We have to learn the hard way. We don't want to be told what to do. God had relatively few rules, if you think about it. Uh, Man was supposed to act like God, or what the Bible calls, image him. While other cultures would build dead stationary figures to represent their deities, God's people were supposed to be living and mobile figures that bore his image wherever they went, carrying a tangible glimpse of what God looked like wherever they went. That was our job. Acting like God or imaging him is all about bringing glory to him. But instead of imaging God, mankind acted like a beast. I'm going to use some metaphors here to help understand the big, the big story. Um, acting like a beast is all about satisfying our fleeting desires. We are hungry, so we eat. We want, so we take. This is beastly living. That's how animals live. Watch for the choice between God and beast in Scripture, because it's a major theme. God also commanded Adam and Eve to make more image bearers. He didn't just mean pop out in miniature humans, although that's part of it. What he said is build kingdom citizens. Make people that are also like me. More image bearers. This is essentially a command to fill the earth and create the city of God on earth. A city that would grow grow through reproduction and eventually fill the entire earth. So I read in the beginning that Adam and Eve are placed in a garden to begin with. Uh, It's where they lived and worked and carried out the vocations uh, that God gave to them. The garden was also the first place that man met with God. Uh, The the first temple, actually. I talked about that some months ago. Uh, And because of this, their maintenance of the garden made them priests of a sort. The rule God gave them over the garden and over Eden also made Adam something like a king. Uh, He was ruling on earth as God's representative in his place. But when they sinned, all this was lost. No more uninhibited communion. No more priestly access. No more dominion. Because of their rebellion, the rule they were given over the rest of creation was forfeited. The city they should have built was lost, and the authority they should have had fell instead to a beast while they became slaves. Life would be difficult outside of the place that God made for man. He made the garden for man. They lost the garden. They were now in a place that was not made for man. Life would be hard. When Adam and Eve followed the example of a beast, God stepped in and killed another beast. The blood of that beast spared them from shedding their blood. The skin of that beast covered their shame, but it also made their beastliness that much more obvious. Even in the midst of all this despair, God gives his first hint of one who would come and set everything right. And over time, he repeats this promise over and over, elaborating each time, giving a little more information so we would be without excuse, even though few saw it. The idea was, you'll see me when I come or or when, when the promise happens. So eventually, this message becomes clear. 
One day, we will be reunited with God like we were in the garden without barriers. Somehow, he'll remove this beastliness and he'll restore our godliness as we were intended to be. We'll live at peace with him in a city of rest that he will bring to earth. But that is all future in our story. Here, we see that Cain sins like his parents. He's not just barred from the garden He's also kicked out of the outer, the, the greater land called Eden that the garden was in. Kicked out completely. And part of his punishment, uh, the main part of his punishment is God condemns him to wander. You're supposed to wander the earth. Don't worry, no one will hurt you, but wander the earth. But in disobedience, the first thing he does, he sets out to build a city. He's going to settle down. He eventually follows this instinct that God gave him or that God gave all of us, to build a city. But instead of building a city that would honor God, he built it to satisfy his own desires. He chose not to trust God's promise of protecting him. He thought he would protect himself by gathering people around him. This continues until the world is full of other beastly people who have all but forgotten God, except one guy. The Bible describes him as being perfect and blameless, though he was a sinner like the rest of us. The point of using this perfect and blameless and righteous language is to say that the Bible wants us to see him as a new Adam of sorts. It's Adam 2.0. We're going to reboot and try this again. It's setting us up for the expectation that someone will come and succeed where Adam failed. That's the goal. They, you see this over and over. It's a new Adam. Is this, is this going to be the one? And over and over, no. God presses the reset button and pours out his judgment on all humanity. Through an onslaught of rain, the created world is undone. All are gone but this new Adam and his family. This new family passes through certain death, protected from God's judgment by a covering that he provides. This time not a skin, but a boat. They exit the ark safely on the other side. It's a rebirth of sorts, foreshadowing baptism, as Peter would later tell us. Like the first family, this family is told to be fruitful and multiply. The creation mandate given again. There are many other similarities, but it's quickly evident that Noah is not going to do any better than Adam did. The next city mentioned in the story is Babel. Uh, Babel was intentionally built so that the people could gather in one place and not be dispersed throughout the earth. This is a violation of God's mandate to fill the earth. Strike one. They also built it to make a name for themselves. This was in violation of God's command to image him. This was not to be a temple to, Im, or to meet God, but a tower where they would glorify themselves. They said they wanted to make a name for themselves. This whole city was built on pride, on rebellion, and idolatry. That was Babel. Babel was the opposite of what God intended a city to be. No communion with him, no rest, no obe obedience. Man does not seem to need a beast to lead him away any longer. Man is now a beast himself, running away from God all on his own. And we're only a little bit into the book. I'm going to pick up the pace a little bit, but there's a lot in Genesis. After the scattering, English Bibles switched from calling it Babel to Babylon, but it's the same place. It was a real historical place, but the name Babylon would be used metaphorically throughout the Bible. The word Babylon would come to resent the city of man. It's an upside-down version of the city that God intended, where Christ was the center, man lived in peace without struggle or frustration. That's actually what Revelation describes as well, and what Eden foreshadowed was going to come. Babylon would become a metaphor for humanity's obsession with glorifying itself and pretending that its creator did not exist. 
God separated the people of the first Babylon by geography and language, but they continued their city building across the earth, worshiping creature rather than creator. And we continue that today. In Genesis 12, Abraham is introduced. His life pointed away, is, is pointed away from Babylon to go to a different land with a different purpose. Just as Babylon was a real city that stands in for rebellion against God, the land Abraham had in view would eventually contain a real city called Jerusalem that would also become a stand-in for the people united by their identity in Christ. So both Babylon and Jerusalem were real places. However, they were also metaphors for a city of God and a city of man that would be pitted against one another, sometimes in actual combat, sometimes just in the ideas of who do you serve, a god or a beast. Um, so in Abraham, we have an upright man who trusts God, another new Adam. The new Adam, this one, receives the same mandate Image God, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue the earth, have dominion. He's told the same things. And this time, God would help him accomplish this. God says, he promises Abraham a family. He promises a land for his family where God would restore the rest of the garden. And he also promises a future blessing where that garden rest would be extended to all the nations, not just his descendants. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. I used to think this is something just found in Hebrews and Romans, but it says it in Genesis 15. This is not news. The gospel has been in the Bible the whole time. Uh, however, this righteousness was not Ab uh, Abraham's righteousness. It would be someone else's righteousness, but it wasn't clear whose. Like Adam, Abraham looked forward to another who would come. But first, the nation that God had promised to come from Abraham has to come. Abraham fathers Isaac, who then fathered Jacob. And his offspring, Jacob's offspring, would be called the people of Israel. One of Jacob's sons was named Joseph. Through a series of events, he became a respected ruler of Egypt. Um, but be because of his powerful connections, he was able to bring the rest of his family to Egypt with him to avoid the famine that was spreading across the land. But, Due to a change in leadership, um, in Egyptian leadership, this massive family who had grown to several million while in Egypt and become called the people of Israel, now there's a turn of tides and they become slaves to Egypt. And that gets us to the end of the book of Genesis. The book of Exodus talks about life in Egypt and Israel's escape from slavery. It's the book where we meet Moses, the burning bush, the Ten Commandments, and then Exodus ends with the construction of the tabernacle. That was quicker than Genesis. Book of Numbers. This book is where we learn about God leading his people through an uninhabited and unforgiving land that's called the wilderness. That's all that's meant by the word wilderness. But we're going to see that theme throughout scripture. God is leading them out of Egypt to the rest that he had been promising. It could have been a much shorter journey. In fact, they should have been there pretty quickly. But the people refused to believe God and follow his instructions. Is this sounding familiar at all? By now, this is a familiar pattern. As a result of their actions, the trip took them 40 years longer than it should have. The next generation starts down the same rebellious path. All they had to do is believe God, but they thought they were smarter than him. Does this remind you of anything in the garden? Um, they, they asked God, why did you leave us in Egypt? It was so good there. We loved it there. And God, I imagine, shaking his head like, you guys weren't alive. I mean, I waited for all your parents to die off. Um, but they remember, like 
kids may, how good things were that they didn't experience. They want to go back. God took them to this awful place. Then they say, well, can't you get us some better food? Better than the miraculous food that fell for free from the sky. I mean, that's what they wanted better than. Uh, But that would come eventually. But uh, first God was going to deal with this issue of rebellion, which he did, and they came around. Um, They could have mirrored God's character and expressed some patience, obedience, gratitude, but instead they acted like beasts. Had they feared the Lord, they could have gained wisdom from God. Proverbs says the fear of the Lord is beginning of wisdom. But since they foolishly chose from the tree of learning from experience, maybe, painful life lessons are ahead. After that, all is left of the books of Moses are Leviticus and Deuteronomy. These books primarily cover the, the, well, during the same time period as Numbers, and they cover law, rituals, all these instructions God has given uh, for the journey in, through the wilderness and th- for the nation. So that's five books. So we're doing pretty good. After the complaining, uh, the people of Israel repent. The second generation begins the process of taking the promised land. And this is the topic of the book of Joshua. One notable story in Joshua speaks of a woman named Rahab. This woman lives in the enemy country of Canaan that the Israelites are coming in to conquer. She was not an Israelite, but she helped the Israelite spies. Because she put her faith in the true God, she was spared, even though she was not an Israelite. This is yet another of many examples throughout all scripture, not just the New Testament, where it shows that God has never been a respecter of persons, of pedigrees, of nations. All he is looking for is trust in him. Uh, though they've been driven out of the, um, they have driven out most of the enemy as they go through in the, in the book of Joshua. Um, they've driven out most of the enemy and settled in the promised land. They didn't clear everyone out. They didn't do everything God said. So Israel still has plenty of trouble ahead of them. Due to the remaining beastly influence of the Canaanites, Israel eventually looked just like them. And this repeats a theme you see over and over. The people would follow the Canaanite influence of sin. God would allow them to be conquered and oppressed by these Canaanites. Eventually, the people would repent because there was nowhere else to go. God would raise up a person called a judge. This isn't a judge in the way we use the word. It basically means a deliverer. This, this person that God would raise up would go and gather these people up, take them away from captivity by the Canaanites, deliver from the enemy, and initiate a new period in peace. Odometer reset. Do it again. That's the book of Judges, over and over and over. However, over this time, the judges themselves become corrupt. They had wandered so far from God that they didn't even know the slightest thing about him. Sometimes they would confuse God with Canaanite deities because they didn't know the difference. So judges were saving people at God's instruction, but that doesn't mean they were fantastic people or terribly uh, good representatives of God. It got to the point where not only did Israel need deliverance from Canaan, but they also needed deliverance from themselves. So to recap, here's what we're looking for through the book of Judges. Uh, We're looking for someone who would succeed where Adam failed, someone who was a descendant of Abraham, who would bless all the nations, and who would be a deliverer who would permanently save the people. And I'm skipping a lot, but that's what we've talked about. After Judges comes the book of Ruth. On the surface, the book of Ruth looks like a love story, because it is. But it's so much more than that. Here's a quick overview. Cliff's notes on Ruth. Ruth is a foreigner living among the people of Israel. She's from Moab. She's living in Israel during very hard times. Everywhere, it's hard. 
Her only connection to the people of Israel is through her dead husband's relatives. She's poor and lives on scraps. But one day, while gathering scraps, she meets a rich man who gives her access to resources she couldn't have had any other way. And it turns out this guy is a distant relative of her mother-in-law, which in their culture qualified him to marry her. So they're married, and their baby would be King David's grandpa. That's the book of Ruth, the end. Uh, I glossed over a little bit, but that's the big picture. The story is nice, but the the symbolism... The symbolism is fantastic. Um, The symbols that that are in this love story are what the story is there for. In the story, the Israelite family is to represent all of Israel. The food shortage was real. It was happening in Moab and Israel and all around. But the famine they had, the biggest issue wasn't a famine of food. It was a, a spiritual famine. As we saw in Judges, everyone had abandoned God. No one could speak for him. However, a powerful Israelite was to come. He would marry a bride who had been adopted into the Israelite family. This relative to come would be named Jesus, but this is way in the future. Ruth represents the church, outsiders who would be made insiders through a kind of marriage. The story of Ruth is a picture of the love of Jesus, the redemption he would offer, and the unification of all believers, whether Israelite or Gentile, under a new covenant which he would instate. But they wouldn't have seen this because Jesus is still way off in the future. So add to this expectations of what people are are looking for, a redeemer who will save all those who joined his covenant. There are two books that are attributed to the prophet Samuel. Um, A lot of fascinating history here. About a thousand years before Jesus, we have a woman named Hannah who dedicated her son Samuel. She did so with a prayer. And in her prayer, she mentions two interesting things. One, she mentions a future king. This is weird because Israel has never had a king at this point. Kings are in the future. So why is there a future king of Israel? No one knows. She also mentions... And the anointed one. The word in Hebrew is the word Messiah. So she mentions a king and a Messiah. The first mention of a Messiah and a mention of a king that nobody understands. So if you haven't picked it up yet with all these pieces and add this in, this is talk, the whole Testament, the whole Bible points to Jesus. It's talking about Jesus. After all this trouble with the judges, the people demand a king, so God gives them Saul. Saul seems to start okay, but he goes bad quickly. After Saul comes David. If Saul was the king that the people wanted, David was the king that God wanted. If you've heard about anyone in the Old Testament, it's probably David. What's interesting though, he was small. He was a dirty shepherd. He was not firstborn. He was eighthborn. He was not what anyone expected of a ruler. He was not terribly notable. But in many ways, he prefigured Jesus. He was God's chosen king. He had the spirit of God. He was poor and unremarkable. He was a servant and a shepherd. He was a wise man and a warrior. On and on, books have been written showing all the points at which David images Christ. He's what theologians call a type of Christ. In many ways, not only is he a new Adam, but he images what we should expect this Messiah, this coming king to look like. But while David was a man after God's heart, he had significant shortcomings. It's starting to seem like no one could succeed where Adam failed. Everyone is a beast who falls short of the glory of God. Solomon, too, is portrayed as a new Adam. In the story, Solomon has become king, and, and he asks God for wisdom to discern between right and wrong. 
He started like Adam started, by seeking after God to obtain this wisdom. He looked good at the beginning. Maybe, finally, this would be the guy that would be the ultimate human. It was looking like it. But sadly, he's just like the old Adam. At the beginning, we see him seeking God for wisdom, but by the end, he has 700 wives and 300 concubines. In fact, under Moses, God had established rules for kings, which didn't exist yet. He had established rules for kings to follow. Solomon broke most, if not all of them. This was definitely not the guy. Solomon inspired and quite possibly wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. A major theme of the book of Ecclesiastes is labor and toil and how difficult and fruitless it can be in this life. Is this familiar at all? He's talking about the curse. The curse after the fall was that now you will toil in your work. Your labor labor will often be frustrated and fruitless. He, He knows how beautiful the promised garden will be and how sweet the rest will be. He knows all this, but the the author is essentially committing an entire book to the theme that we will live out that we currently live outside the garden and we will die. Hopeful. Um, it's it's not it's not a hopeful one, but it's a realistic one. In this life, you will have trouble. Period. Jesus would end that li- that sentence differently. Throughout this journey of God's promises being fulfilled, He spoke of wanting to dwell again among His people. Uh, Since Moses, God's people have traveled with a special tent called the tabernacle. This tent was a portable palace to honor Israel's God. It was also a miniature representation of the garden where God um, could live again among his people as he had in the the original garden that he created. Uh, The symbolism inside the tabernacle, there was no question looking around, this was supposed to remind them of the garden. Once they settled in the promised land, the, this traveling temple was replaced with a permanent building called a temple. Garden, tabernacle, temple, all the same idea. These are all reminiscent of Eden. They're echoing Eden um, in a way that Israelites in the present could see these holy places that spoke in a language that kept the perfection of creation in the front of their mind. They could remember this creation, even though they hadn't experienced it. It was thousands of years in the past. But, but these are ways to remind them of what God had done. After Solomon, the nation splits in two. Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Over the next few hundred years, each has about 20 kings, and most of them are pretty awful. Uh, The people in the northern kingdom of Israel have little interest in God. They form political alliances with others. Uh, This is the time of the prophets as well, and the prophets keep on telling them a singular message. Repent. Turn back to God. Surprisingly, they don't. Um, And just as predicted, um, they are taken away into Assyria in captivity, and little is ever heard from them again. Uh, The people in the southern kingdom that splits, this is now called Judah, they weren't quite as corrupt, but they were close. Um, They had their own prophets who said the same thing. Repent. See what happened to the north? This can happen to you. They lasted a little longer, but ultimately they fell as well. In 586 BC, they fell to Babylon. Uh, The difference is these people would not be dispersed and lost like the north was. A few of them would even return home after some time. And those ones who would return, those would be called Jews. That's where the Jews come into the story. We've glossed over a lot, but this covers the major strokes of the Old Testament. At this point, there's a period of about 400 years where the Bible is silent. 
The Old Testament looks forward to Jesus. The Gospels tell the story of Jesus' life and ministry. The book of Acts gives us the history of the apostolic movement as it spreads through the, the empire after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. And the balance of the books are letters to churches and individuals during the first 60 years of the church, which elaborate on Jesus' teaching. This is why we can say that the whole Bible is about Jesus. Beginning to end, he's the point. Jesus is the perfect man who succeeded everywhere that Adam failed. Jesus' disciples want us to understand that Jesus was also the true Israel. Uh, Isaiah called Israel a servant or a suffering servant. And Matthew and Luke uh, use the same names for Jesus and say that's who Isaiah was talking about. Uh, they t Philip tells the Ethiopian eunuch the same thing. Hosea made reference to Israel, and later Matthew would say, yeah, he was talking about Jesus. Frequently in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel is compared to a vine that needed pruning and tending, and later Jesus would talk about a vine and say, no, you don't understand. I am the vine, the true vine. Sure, you guys are a shoot that's really important, but I'm not afraid to trim you or cut you off. It's about me, not you. I'm God. There's so many more fascinating parallels to explore between Jesus' life and the story of, nation, of the nation of Israel. The point of the, that these authors want us to see is, not, is, is to see is that um, Jesus is the true and better Adam. He's also the true and better Israel. He passed every test that Israel did not. We know that the Old Testament is full of types and shadows because the New Testament tells us. Jesus' favorite name for himself was Son of Man. This is basically an instruction to look to Daniel chapter 7 to see what this, meant, what this claim meant. When Jesus was on the cross at the end of his life, he says, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wasn't just saying that to make us ask a strange question. He was saying that to make people look up Psalm 22 because that's the first line of the psalm. And if you read the rest of that chapter, you find out what Jesus was saying. He was claiming to be God. Uh, Jesus showed the disciples on the, the Emmaus Road that all of scriptures uh, were concerning him. Hebrews, the, the, the series we just finished, says that Jesus is a better messenger. He's a better salvation, a better rest. He brings a better covenant. He's a better sacrifice. He's a better high priest. He said that he is what the temple foreshadowed, and he's in fact the temple itself. He's God in flesh, come to pay the penalty due. He's the king from the line of David. He's the one who scattered and confused mankind at Babel to split them apart. And he's also the one who bypassed those same cultures and languages at Pentecost to bring them back together. Ever since Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden, the story of the Bible is one of unsettlement, destruction, enslavement, wandering, but God promised rest. The rest he promised the Israelites was the promised land of Canaan. But even Canaan didn't bring the rest that he promised. It's not what he had in mind. There's a bigger picture. Only in Jesus would they or would we find perfect rest. Interspersed throughout the story of scripture, we've seen continual reminders that beasts oppress mankind. Beasts brought calamity and the plagues against Pharaoh. Daniel's visions see the coming world powers as different types of animals. Nebuchadnezzar even went so far as to live like a beast to where people saw him and it looked like he had talons and feathers like a bird. He ate grass like an animal. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, we see God himself confront the accuser. Oh, can you bring me an announcement? The yellow sheet. The new Adam dealt properly with the beast where the first Adam had failed. Jesus was offered temples and cities. Satan appealed to man's beastly motiv or motivations. Thank you. 
to man's beastly motivations of self-preservation, rejection of God, and pride, but Jesus perfectly imaged God. In Revelation, the same story is told repeatedly in a communication technique called recapitulation. This just means the author is saying the same thing over and over, lots of different ways. Let me try saying it this way. If you don't understand it, let me say it this way. Over and over, he tells the same story. What's the story through the whole middle of Revelation? There's a perfect man who comes to defeat a beast of some sort. That's Revelation. It's telling the same story over and over of Jesus coming to defeat the beast. Um, in, in the, by the end of Revelation, beasts are defeated. Beastliness itself is gone. Aggression is removed. Man communes with God. Our work is no longer marked by futility. Thy kingdom has come. The city of God is here. Man images God rather than a beast. Eternal life in a garden temple city that is now expanded to, to encompass the entire earth is now a reality. But this is still in the future. But that's what the end of Revelation talks about. And it's describing the same thing we see in the beginning of Genesis. These are the ends of the bridge that I mentioned last week. If we're talking about a narrative arc, the beginning and the end, the, er the original creation and the new creation. Uh, if we see the um, if we see these as the ends of the bridge, then we can uh, we can look at the major movements of creation, fall, and restoration as pillars across that bridge. And we can use all these themes we've discussed today to pave the way and fill in the rest of the pieces that build the superstructure. Once that's all in place, we should be able to take any individual story or teaching of Scripture and locate it properly along the narrative arc, not only putting it in the right place, but understand how it serves the bigger story. What was it contributing to the whole? What is this telling us about Jesus? And this is what I found is the best way that I know anyway to keep from making a mess of things like I mentioned last week that I had done in the past. And hopefully through this whirlwind you can take something similar from it as well. Thank you Lord for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for sending Jesus and for giving us this, this communication that is honestly not that long for the amount of information it contains about you and, and how we are to live life. I thank you for giving it to us, for giving us all we need for life and godliness. I thank you for this church, a community of people who can discuss and work through real life with you. I thank you for the picnic that we're going to have today where we can discuss things together. Um, and I, I pray that you bless the food. Thank you for all the, those who prepared it. And I thank you for the food that you've provided. Um, we could live much worse than we do, but you have blessed us. I thank you for this. And I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.